Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for the word of the Lord will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. This is the word of the Lord. I, like many of you, have... uh, a handful of podcasts that keep me company on my commutes or while I'm doing yard work. Or who here are podcast people? Anyone? Yeah. I find it very, very helpful. One of them that I occasionally check out is a podcast called Working It Out with Mike Berbiglia. Anyone else? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. I find him really, really funny. And he has this, uh, this very simple podcast where he's a comedian and he interviews comedians. And it's a pretty typical thing where it started during COVID where they, didn't, they couldn't go out to clubs and so they had this podcast to kind of just talk about their bits and they're kind of working it out with one another. But my favorite part about his podcast is there's a section called The Slow Round. And he asked the same questions uh, uh, to each of his guests. And one of the questions I really, really love, it's this. What is a memory that is on repeat in your mind? It maybe is not because of some significant moment, something, you know, really, really serious or really, really incredible, but what is, do you have a memory that's just, just on a loop in your mind and maybe you don't even care for it to be there? I find that many of us have some of those memories, oftentimes from childhood, that just keep reemerging like an uninvited guest. You guys want to hear mine? Okay. It's kind of apropos for the day because it has to do with soccer. Around 14 years ago, I met some guys around town, and they talked about wanting to start a soccer team, and so we decided to do so. And so we were like reliving our childhood, but in being middle-aged men, we're just worried about throwing out our backs. And we were not that good, but it did not hold us back from taking it like really, really, really seriously. And so this one game, I was like a non-power forward, and my friend Tim was dribbling the ball along the side. You have to picture this because this really happened to me. He was dribbling along the sideline, and all the defenders were going to him, and he made the most beautiful cross right into the middle of the field, and I was there. 
And you could just see, it was like just everything was coming together, like all these puzzle pieces. And it was this beautiful cross. The people on the sidelines began to stand up in anticipation for this easy goal. And I was coming right at me. Now this cocky guy, it was his first game, he was right to my left and he said, it's mine, leave it. And I, for whatever reason, decided, okay, I'm going to let the ball go through me and let him shoot it, okay? But I didn't just let it go through me. I decided to really sell it. So my idea was I am going to try, I'm going to kick right in front of it and let the ball go between my legs so, so that the defenders and the goalie would come after me and it would go to him and be a perfect goal. And so this is what I did. I kicked right before it went between my legs and the stance went like up like this, like cheering to, oh, because I really sold it, guys. It really looked like I was meaning to kick it. And it went through my legs, and then the guy bumbled it, and the other team took it away. And the stand went from celebration to, like, absolute despair. And none of my teammates looked at me. The guy next to me just, like, ran off. And quickly, I turned around, and my coach subbed me out. That's a long walk. It's a long walk from the middle of the pitch all the way to the sidelines. And when I got there, no one talked to me other than my friend's wife who was like trying to make the moment less awkward by saying, so how's the family? I'm like, I don't want to talk about my family. You know the thing that's more embarrassing than missing a kick like that in the middle of a game is going around and telling people, I, I did that on purpose. I did that on purpose, guys. I, I was letting Rick have the ball. Like there's nothing more embarrassing than that, and that's what I think of weekly. <laughs> weekly I just replay that moment though everything from my anger for this guy to the stands and the whole thing of just like why didn't I just kick it it was an easy goal it, I, I don't care I don't care about this memory I don't, who cares it's a stupid soccer game but I think about it a lot and I think perhaps the reason why is uh is I really really care what people think of me I have this like moment and in painful repeat, this visceral pain of slow motion because I actually, uh, I hate being misunderstood. And I, if I'm honest, I deeply care what people think of me. I'm afflicted with a problem that I know I'm not alone with that many of you can relate to, and it is people-pleasing. Can I have an amen? My name is Mark, and I'm a recovering people-pleaser. If I'm not careful, I will spend most of my energy and resources making sure that everyone is okay with me. So that life becomes this uh, game where I just make sure to appease everyone with their, all of their different agendas for my life, their perceptions of what, I, uh, what they want me to be and who I hope I, I uh, perceive to be in this world. I have this game I play every day. I'm not sure if you do. As I'm laying in bed, I replay all the different moments of my day I wish I could go back and redo, Right? The unfortunate thing I said, the thing I should have done I didn't do, all those re regrettable moments that uh, were misleading. It's an awesome game. I really, really recommend it. <laughs> Approval addiction is real, and y'all, it's very toxic. So along the way, I created a program, a program for people like myself uh, who have a, a, you know, people-pleasing tendencies. My program is this. I have to disappoint three people a day. I have to, intent, you know, just disappoint three people a day. So instead of saying yes to an easy request, I just go, no, I'm not going to do it. And I think to myself, well, that's one. Uh, some of you don't like this. I see some of you shaking your head no. 
that counts as number two for the day, you know? <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Uh, honestly, the truer program for people-pleasing and for this hatred of being misunderstood is uh, a better program is actually to follow Jesus. In this series, we've talked about how Jesus came to us as one of us. He walked this world and, and experienced the entire human journey, just like you and I have, so that we can find uh, solidarity with Christ and healing in that solidarity. And one thing I'm completely convinced of, if I hate being misunderstood, Jesus knows what that means. He knows deeply what it means to be misrepresented in this world. Uh, people did not know what to make of Jesus. They, had no, they, they didn't know what box to put him in, what kind of savior he would be, who he was, and I believe he was constantly misunderstood. And people continued to be frustrated by the fact that Jesus didn't fit into their categories or their agendas or their plans or their dreams or desires, that Jesus continued uh, to, mis, uh, to be misunderstood and to disappoint people. I think one of the lesser-known spiritual disciplines that Jesus displays is this type of indifference in being misunderstood. I don't think Jesus was like, he did, I don't think it didn't matter to him. I think it deeply mattered to him. I think it, uh, he felt that experience, probably didn't love to be misunderstood or misrepresented, but it just doesn't seem to direct Jesus' life. It seems as if Jesus was continually misunderstood, like when you hear how people talked about him. Some people called him a demon, a false prophet. Some people called him Elijah, reincarnated. He was known to be a radical, to not be trusted. Uh, over and over again, Jesus was mislabeled, misunderstood. Just think of the moment when his disciples came to him and said to him, so some people are saying that you are weird. Some are saying that you are awesome. This is my translation. Uh, and some of you don't know who you are. And then Jesus looked at them and said, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? Jesus was criticized, discredited every step of the way. And yet, he displayed this type of indifference towards leaving, living based on other people's approval and reputation. This, he didn't really care to project and protect an image. Not only that, but Jesus also displayed an indifference towards the hollow praise of people too. He wasn't phased by the criticism of the many, but he also wasn't tempted by the approval of the masses. There were times, especially when in these larger moments of spectacle, of healing, and of, uh, of divine miracles that Jesus did, where the crowds would be worked up into this frenzy, and it seems as if you, if you were to plan out how to create a movement, it would be that moment where Jesus would maximize on that kind of momentum. And Jesus seems to sidestep all of that because he saw that they had a praise for him that was directed to their own dreams, their own desires. And if only he would continue to feed him as he did before, if only he would turn against the Roman Empire, if only he would use his power to serve their agenda, then the crowds would continue to follow him. But Jesus didn't fall prey to the pleasing trap, people-pleasing trap. Jesus displays this indifference towards the criticism of the crowds or the hollow praise of the masses. So how was he able to do that? Some of us might say the easy answer, well, it's really easy to do that when you're the son of God, right? But in this series, we're talking about Jesus was completely human. And I think that he was re really, really tempted to portray who he was in this world, to protect that image. I think he was 
had the temptation to, uh, to people please. I feel like I have that over and over again. We see this in Scripture. Even if you were to notice um, the enemy's number one ploy to get at Jesus, Satan's number one plan to get Jesus to turn on his agenda, it was this. If you really are the Son of God, you will fill the blank in. Over and over again, it was like this, this ploy that the enemy had towards him. If you really are the Son of God, then throw yourself from the top of the temple. If you really are the Son of God, come down from that cross. That right there is the temptation to protect your image, to, like, to, to make sure you are completely understood. Yet Jesus, he was able to navigate that in ways that I know I can't. How was he able to do that? Well, this might be speculation, but I think Jesus was able, was helped in being able to navigate being misunderstood because he was raised by people who knew what it was like to be misrepresented and misunderstood, in particular, Mary. Jesus' mother, Mary, lived with the stigma and reputation that was incredibly undeserved. But, but she knew, she was someone who knew what it was like to be driven by a different motivation. Just think of Mary's experience. I think this might help us. I recently saw a painting by someone named Arthur Hacker. It was a painting from 19, I'm sorry, 1892, a painting called The Annunciation. Let's take a look at it. So here's this painting. The Annunciation is the moment when the angel interrupts Mary's life and tells her, makes the announcement that she is about to carry a son whose name will be Jesus. And I find this painting, I've never seen it before, I find it really, really striking. You can ask the question, what do we notice in this painting? This is a group discussion, by the way. As our friend Scott would say, welcome to art class all of a sudden. What do we notice in this painting? Either what do you see or what does it make you feel? How young she looks. Yeah. She's not facing the angel. <laughs> yeah, she looks kind of, uh-huh, she looks calmer than you and I would be. What about the angel? It's almost like this apparition, this ghostly figure. What do y'all notice about the angel? Whispering, Yeah. Yeah, we think of like the angel coming in with glory and like this grandiose, but what if it was just a whisper in this young girl's ear? We also have the fact that she has, looks like a clay pot next to her, like she was gathering water. This was just an ordinary day, like any other. She had no plan, she wasn't asking for this, but God's plan interrupted her. And someone made the comment, uh, where is she facing? Not the angel but straight ahead, almost looking at us, right? Looking at us maybe with this sense of weight of what was just whispered to her. Maybe, I mean, this, for me, this painting is also really intimate. It has this intimacy in this moment. Like we're peering into something like that was deeply intimate. I like having pictures of this, about this Individual Mary, because it personalizes it. It takes this random character in Scripture and makes it like someone that you and I might bump into at Whole Foods or, or wherever in our city. 
this young girl who did not ask for this, but it came to her. The rest of Mary's life would be encountering this continual experience of being misunderstood. If you can, just look, look at her face here. This young girl. Her life would never be the same after this. Her life would never be the same. Though we might think of Mary as some stoic example of obedience who breaks into song after hearing this declaration like she is a part of some musical, you have to know that the news that she had heard in this moment, this pregnancy that she all of a sudden was carrying in her was completely disorienting and probably really, really scary. Because think of everything that she might lose. Her reputation, perhaps her engagement, her dreams of a future, her sense of control, her bachelorette party in Fredericksburg. I mean, everything is going to change. And what would she be given in, in that place? Social disgrace, becoming pregnant out of wedlock, being the source of speculation, having religious scorn given to her, perhaps being the laughing stock of her community if she actually let it be known what this angel whispered in her ear, Perhaps even the cost of relationships, those who thought maybe she was being deceitful or crazy. Have you ever thought about the fact that when they traveled to Bethlehem, they did so because of it was, their, it was what they had to do in the census, that everyone in Joseph's family had to gather there? So Joseph and Mary, pregnant Mary, they didn't just travel there on their own. They were with all of Joseph's family. And for whatever reason, there was no room for her, no, no room for them. And this is reading between the lines, but I would think of a family that has, in a culture has a high value of caring for one another, especially in times of being vulnerable. How come no one made room for them? Perhaps they were looked at and they were misunderstood. Mary's sacred interruption would lead to a perpetual life of being misunderstood. Finding favor with God would mean that she would lose favor in this world. But Mary was driven by something different. We have a snapshot into her character and into her heart when we read her song in Luke 1. She's saying, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, generation will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary was filled with courage and with faith this is an important combo for those who are going to be in, uh, misunderstood in this world because faith gives us the ability to believe that God's word to her uh, will come true. And courage was given to her. She exercises courage to cling to God's word against all odds. Her focus, as we see in this song, is a longing to, to make God greater. That word glorify means to magnify, means to enlarge. So in other words, Mary is seeing that the deepest part of her, her soul, wants to make God greater than anything else. My spirit rejoices that I have a Savior. Why? Because he is mindful of me. God sees me. God remembers me. I think for us to be able to navigate this world while being misunderstood, for us to circumvent the people-pleasing trap, we need to remember that God is mindful of us. We need to have a, whole, a heart and a soul that one magnifies, one that makes God, God's uh, glory greater, 
greater than the approval of other people, greater than the agendas of other people. And when we do that, maybe we can figure out how to follow in Mary's example. This would be crucial because as others misunderstand her, she needs to remember that God knows her. Though other people mislabel her, though other people might gossip falsehoods about her, there is one who knows her inside and out and has chosen her. And Mary's response is, I choose to make that greater. You can imagine how that formed Mary, who she was and how she navigated this world. But furthermore, you can imagine how that shaped how Mary parented. Can't you picture Jesus as a boy coming home teary-eyed at the ridicule and the jeering of others to find his mother waiting for him? And as young Jesus curled up on her lap, can't you imagine Mary whispering the thing that maybe she internalized to herself to say over young Jesus, you forget what they are saying. They don't know who you really are. You forget what they're saying. You remember whose you you are and who you belong to. What if that is what Jesus was doing in those 30 unknown years before his public ministry? What if he was learning how to claim his true identity so that when he stepped out into the public, he wouldn't be tempted to lose himself in the the place of being understood or seeking approval? That is the only way it seems like he could navigate this world as he did. I don't think that would come to him automatically. I think it had to be a discipline that Jesus enacted. Over again, remembering who he was, Jesus was known to be a man of solitude. I think that's because he had to practice this again and again to root himself in his father's love who knew him, who was mindful of him, and who was with him every step of the way. He would have to trust the word from his heavenly father that just like he said over him in his baptism, this is my son whom I love. It would be a practice that patterned Uh, was patterned by his mother and the one that he learned to, to magnify God greater than anything else in his world, greater than the misconceptions, the misrepresentations that Jesus learned to do this. So what about you and I? How do we continue to live into that legacy? Well, it's a good thing that Jesus is no longer misrepresented in this world, right? Cue the laughing track, okay. Uh, I'm not going to focus on the obvious expressions, uh, the misrepresentations that we find of Jesus, of Jesus' people in this world. I think uh, those would be too easy to strike down like a pinata. I want to focus on something else. Sometimes we will be misunderstood in this world because of Jesus, because we follow Jesus. We follow a Savior that continues to be misunderstood and misrepresented So if that is the case, if that's whom we're following, we should not be surprised to find ourselves in the same boat. We should follow someone who will defy the labels and the standards of this world, just like he did in his day. Recently, I met someone, uh, another church, uh, another pastor from a different denomination, and I met them and they asked us about, uh, they asked me about my theology, my upbringing, what my beliefs are, specifically around my view of of Christ and my view of scripture, and they ended the conversation by saying, oh, so you're like an evangelical, to which I went, well, you know, eh, well. Later on, the same, very same week, someone asked about our church, 
and our posture towards this world. And after hearing my response, they said, oh, so you're like a liberal. You're like a liberal church. And to that, I went, well, are we evangelicals? Are we liberal progressives? My answer, who cares? Who cares what label you want to put, us, uh, put on us? What do those words even mean anymore, right? My goal is not for us to monitor our brand, and I, I want to throw up in my mouth when I call it our brand, right? Because uh, my goal is to ensure that we don't align with a certain label or brand. What are we called to align with? I want to align with Jesus, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow his teachings, his example, his love. So let people misunderstand us as much as they want. Let us be misrepresented as much as we want. We can't control that. The only thing we can control is our ability to respond to the invitation that we have from Jesus to follow him, for us to follow this misunderstood Savior. I love this line from one of my favorite writers, Flannery O'Connor. She, she's an incredible author, especially writes short stories. But I love this line she once said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Living with Christ should make us odd. Not only in the ways that Christians are usually odd by being quirky and weird, by having our own, like, a breadcrumb and Fit fish t-shirt, like not that kind of odd, but like a different kind of odd by living in an alignment with a different kind of kingdom, being odd by maybe being hard to categorize or label, maybe being odd by whom we're befriending and who we're walking with, maybe being odd because we don't assimilate with the tides of this world and the decisions of this world. We reject the label-making that comes to us that's so easy for us to fall in line with, this label-making of who we're against, who we're supposed to despise, who we're, who we're supposed to hate. What if we're odd by rejecting all of that and odd by how we love, how, how we extend hospitality, who we walk with, odd in our generosity, odd in our compassion, Odd in our extravagance love to this world, regardless of how they might respond to us? What if we hold that kind of indifference of being misrepresented and misunderstood? The only way we do that is by magnifying Jesus more than anything else. By the agenda of this world, our longings to be approved in this world, our... (laughs) our affiliations that might be broken if we continue to walk in that way? What if we magnify that? Because Jesus' kingdom has never fit into the constructs of this world. And I still think in 2022, it still is the case that we know a different kind of truth. And I think that will continue to make us odd. I don't mean to make this sound easy. I think it's painful, to be honest. I, I think it's I think it's painful to be misunderstood. It's painful to be misrepresented. But it's a part of being human. I'm sure there's parts of you in your life where you feel misrepresented, that you feel like you are not fully understood, maybe by anyone. It's isolating. It's frustrating. It's anxiety-producing. As painful as it is to be misunderstood and as angering as it is to being misrepresented, I think it's equally as beautiful and powerful when someone completely knows you. You know, you know that's like with a friend. Like when a, a friend is with you and you are just understood. 
Like you feel like they see you completely and there's solidarity and there's empathy. It's flowing back and forth and they just get you, you know? This is the gift of Jesus, Emmanuel. You can begin your days by knowing that there is one who's not only with you, but understands you completely. There's someone who sees you inside and out and is going to walk with you through your entire journey so that you might know you're never alone. You're never fully misunderstood because there's someone who is mindful of you, that's with you. Vine family, I want to declare over you the words that interrupted young Mary's life, the words that she held on to, I think the words that she told Jesus again and again, the story about how he came into this world, and it began with these words from that angel whispering into her ear, perhaps, greetings, you are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Receive these words as if God is saying them to you today. You are highly favored. For God is with you. Christ is with you. He's mindful of you. And as you might be misunderstood in this world, misrepresented, he knows you inside and out. May you find healing and hope in this incredible truth. And may that truth make all of us odd. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.